everyone. Today is Monday, December 26th. The Industry Focus cast is on vacation this week, so we figured we'd play some, um, some old, old sounds bad, uh, treasured oldies, uh, awesome episodes of, of 2016 past. Uh, anyway, here's an Industry Focus Financials that ran in April of 2016. It's about writing, a topic near and dear to my heart. Um, I hope you all enjoy it. Merry belated Christmas, happy Hanukkah, and a heaping dose of holiday cheer for everyone. How to take emotions out of investing, or why you should learn how to write. Hello everyone, welcome to Industry Focus Financials Edition. Today is April 11th, 2016. My name is Gabby LaPera and John Maxfield is joining us on the phone. So we have kind of a crazy episode for you today. Today we're going to talk about writing. If this sounds like not our wheelhouse, uh, I thought it sounded crazy, but Maxfield convinced me and the more I thought about it, the more I agreed. So um, let's talk about how you can use writing to, to make you a better investor. Um, I think that most people are familiar with the concept of decision fatigue, right? Just, just as a summary, just in case you aren't. Decision fatigue is the idea that the more decisions you make, you're more likely to make poor decisions going forward, right? So say you are at the supermarket and you are there for a whole hour, which is a long time to be at the supermarket. So maybe at the beginning you go in and you're like, I'm going to eat real healthy this week. I'm going to get all my fruits and veggies. But after you're there for an hour, all you want to do is get a package of double stuff Oreos and just stick them all on your face all at once. All right? Because you've already made so many decisions about what brand of orange juice to get and how many peppers you need and I don't know what, all the decisions you make at the grocery store. But this applies to real life. Like this happens to you all the time. This is why you should not make decisions, like important decisions at the end of the day if you can avoid it. You want to you kind of want to go into this fresh. Now the reason I'm talking about this is because investing is about making decisions. A lot of decisions. And in order to make good decisions, you want to know that you are thinking as clearly and as critically and as logically as possible. So Maxfield pitched me this idea that writing is a great way to do that. Yeah. I mean, if, if you think about it again, so first of all, I love your supermarket analogy. It makes me, it, it makes me think about when I go to the supermarket and then I'll get like candy or something. I literally just did this the other day at Trader Joe's and then you make them put it on the top of the bag so you can eat it in the car. I mean, like what, an, what, <laughs> like, what animals are we? You know what I mean? Like, what is that all about? But yeah, I love that. But, you know, when you think about writing and you think about investing, there is a huge overlap. And here's kind of where I came up with that, 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 whole, that, that whole thought process. You know, one of the benefits of working as a writer for The Motley Fool is that we are able to read a substantial amount. You know, I've read on average probably a book a week every, you know, every week since I started writing for The Fool five years ago. And one of the things that I have come away with from that whole process is that there is a large overlap between the best investors and really good writers. Let me give you some examples. Warren Buffett, his annual letter to shareholders. It's not only interesting because this is the, you know, the richest guy in America writing it, but it is really well written and really well laid out. Benjamin Graham, obviously his mentor who, who kind of started that whole value investing process. He was an excellent writer. Howard Marks at Oak Tree Capital Management, brilliant, brilliant investor, equally brilliant writer. George Soros, 
Henry Clues, who was the Warren Buffett of the Gilded Age. He wrote a book. I mean, these guys, David Einhorn, Peter Lynch. I know you don't like, you're not as big of a fan of Peter Lynch. But all of these guys are excellent, excellent writers and excellent investors. And then so you say, well, how, is there some type of correlation here? I, I mean, is or is this completely coincidental? And kind of to Gab, to your point, Gabby, I can't help but think that there is a relationship here. And here's why: one of the things that we know about investing is that, as a general rule, individual investors underperform the market to a meaningful degree. And the other thing that we know is why they underperform, and that is because they allow emotions to dictate their investment decisions in the place of logic. And what writing does is when you are forced to put down your ideas you know, in print, it, you have to be more disciplined about them. And when, so when you think that through, that allows you to take out, to a certain extent, emotions from your investing decisions. And that is why, as a general rule, while writing, it, it's also very beneficial in a lot of other areas in your life, but it's particularly beneficial in investing. Definitely. And I don't know if this makes particular sense to me because I'm a highly verbal person. So I think that I think I think in words and having things in words helps me check the internal logic of my thought and justify my conclusions in a place that's outside of my brain. Because when it's all inside your head, sometimes you can kind of gloss over the parts that don't make 100 percent the greatest of sense but when it's all written out you can you can actually check everything because it's all written out you don't have to remember everything in your head you can just look at it and see if it all fits together but to do this you have to write in a particular way we're not talking about creative writing because that's a whole different kettle of fish but it's a little bit a lot it's a lot more like science writing which is something that I'm a huge fan of and it's something that I've taught before so the number one thing that you need in any single piece that you write is a strong thesis statement and not just a strong thesis statement the thesis statement needs to be at the beginning of whatever it is you're writing so that everything you write relates back to it every time you start a new paragraph your topic sentence should be something that helps support your thesis yeah and and, and really to your point Gabby I mean this is a rule that just kind of put this all in perspective this is a rule that not only and, and we're going to go through a handful of rules here. But they not only apply to investing, but just to writing in general. So even if you're not writing about investing, if you're writing an email, right? if you're writing a memo to your boss, whatever it is, these really simple rules will help you become better writers. They're really kind of the distilled wisdom of myself, Gabby, and other people who have you know, written and edited you know, on a professional level now for some time. And so to Gabby's, to your point, Gabby, you know, you, there's a tendency for writers to think that what you should, you know, the objective is to get the reader to read to the very end of their piece. And so one of the things that they do is they hide the ball. Now, I don't know where this came from, but, and maybe I'm just making this up in my, in, in, in my head, but this has kind of been my experience in my progression in writing. But what you really want to do, you don't want to reserve information to the end. You want to put it right out immediately. That very first sentence or two, which newspaper writers refer to as the lead, is a really critical thing to do. Because put out your, your thesis right then, because then throughout the rest of your piece, both yourself and the reader can test 
the logic of your thesis. So let me give you an example. Let's say I want to talk about Bank of America, right? Well, I'm going to say that Bank of America is a buy right now. Well, you shouldn't you know, lay out the evidence first and then at the very end say Bank of America is a buy right now. You just come right out at the very beginning and say, look, Bank of America is a buy right now. Then you lay out your logic. It's trading for, you know, 40% below book value. You know, it's, or its return on assets is you know, 25% below you know, 1%, which you know, 1% is kind of the industry metric that, you want, that, that it should eventually get up to. And then you know, blah, 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 you know, hit all those logical things. And then the reader along the way can test your analysis. Absolutely. Okay, this is actually a huge pet peeve of mine that people do not include thesis statements. When I was a graduate student, I would often grade undergraduate papers, and people would turn in entire essays without a thesis. And I was working in a science. I don't know why you would ever, if you're an undergraduate out there and you are writing a paper right now and it's not for a creative writing class, go back and check to make sure you have a thesis. Sometimes it's hard to write a thesis at the very beginning. Maybe you don't exactly know what you're going to write about. In that case, write your entire essay, go all the way down to the bottom, take your conclusion paragraph, make it your intro paragraph, and write yourself a new conclusion. Because by the end of the paper, I hope you gosh darn well know what you're writing about. I'm so sorry. I feel very passionate about theses. Like, yeah, I, I feel very you know strongly. What, I don't know if you can tell. <laughs> but Gabby, I, I, that, that point that you made about the conclusion is a really good point. It's well-designed piece is kind of like a circle. Your beginning, you will begin and end at the exact same points, which are your thesis. And when we talk about thesis, what we're talking about is, you know, the point that you're trying to convey in that particular piece. Yes. So I think we have beaten this bit of advice to death. Um, but just in case, write theses, people, please. Please, I beg of you. All your all your graduate TAs will thank you. They'll weep with happiness when they see that there's a thesis. People will automatically deduct 20% if there's no thesis from a paper. I'm telling you that right now. This this is to help you all, college students. Um, I've read a lot of pretty terrible papers. Um, okay, so the second thing that you really want to do is once you once you know what you're going to write about, once you have your thesis, is you want to make sure when you start writing that you are writing with your reader in mind. Right. I mean, you want to, that is exactly right. A lot of the tendency, again, this is a tendency that I found among writers, is that the, they try to write to make themselves sound smart. Well, that's great. That's a, we all want to sound smart, right? But the problem is that when you write to sound smart, you sound like someone who is trying to sound smart as opposed to somebody who is actually smart. The really good writers, the really good thinkers, what they do is they write simply. They strip everything down to the absolute bare bones to make sure that what is important is not the writing style so much, but that the message is being conveyed in as clear and as simple prose as possible. Right? So you want to, you know, what, what are we talking about writing simply? You want to use simple words. Right, you know, we all want to, again, we all want to show everybody we got a great vocabulary and all those things. But if you're using really fancy words, that are long and complicated, you're going to cause disruption to the reader. And you're going to unnecessarily obfuscate the whole point of the piece because it's going to be more complicated than it actually <laughs> I, has to be. I like that you just said obfuscate when you just asked us to use smaller words. Yeah, sorry. Now, there are exceptions to this, right? Because there are sometimes when, you know, uh, uh, you know, a complicated word, you know, fits the purpose exactly, you know, to, you know, it conveys exactly what you're trying to convey. So there are exceptions to every rule, right? And kind of the second thing beyond using simple words is that you want to use simple 
sentence construction. You know, start with your subject, go to your verb, end with your object. Now, there are variations of this, but you know, that's active writing as opposed to passive writing. And the more tradition, there's a reason that sentence, you know, that, is, that sentence construction is, you know, the, the way it is under the traditional rules, it's because they, it is designed to communicate really clearly. So when you go out and you make long, complicated sentences with a bunch of clauses, or if you use passive voice as opposed to active voice, you're just going to, again, muddy the waters in terms of what you're trying to convey. Yes, you definitely are. Um, I kind of, this is kind of analogous to having a professor, an astrophysicist, who is teaching Physics 101, and his head is all up with black holes and universes far away, and he is trying to communicate this to to freshmen who would are maybe taking his class for a credit because they have to. Um, because he's not speaking at their level, they're not going to get what's going on. So you really need to keep both your readers and your listeners in mind. Right, and if you think about, like, you know, to go back to some of those investors who are also fabulous writers, if you read Warren Buffett's letter, literally anybody can read his letter. You don't have to be, you know, a guy on his level of investing to be able to read and understand what he is saying. The same thing is true of Howard Marks at Oak Tree Capital Management. I mean, these guys are literally, they are brilliant. They are geniuses when it comes to investing. But the way that they write, it is accessible to anybody. And so what you see from their writing is that how clear and logical and analytical their thought processes are. And that is what you want to convey both to yourself in writing and to anybody who may read, your, read what you're writing. Yes. And as a quick side note, just in case you don't know what clauses or objects or any of this stuff is, I'm going to put in a plug for Strunk and White's Elements of Style. It's it's a classic. It's the handbook of of good writing, I think. Um, yeah. Anyway, getting back to what John John was saying about these people having very clear logical thought, this is something that you need to do in your writing, and this gets back to having a good thesis. But you need to have pieces of evidence that support your thesis and that make sense, and that all of them make sense with each other. Yeah, and, and if you think about you know a piece, you, you start with your thesis. Right, and then you're going to have a bunch of paragraphs underneath that. Well, each of those paragraphs you can kind of think of as links in a chain, but they all have got to be linked together. And the thing that links them is logic, right? So you want each paragraph to build off the one before it, which in turn builds off your thesis and then goes to your conclusion. So again, it's kind of it's kind of a you know it, you know the beginning and the end kind of start and finish at the same place, right? But if you're not paying attention to logic. Again, it really almost renders the whole point of a piece or an email or whatever it is kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, pointless, right? Because it's not strung together logically. And the whole point in investing is to make good, strong, non-emotional decisions. And you do that by, by resorting to logic. Yes. And this is actually a flaw that I've seen in a lot of people's writing is that they present you a thesis and then they just state things, but they don't link it back to the thesis, one. And two, although they're stating things, oftentimes it's not evidence for the thesis. You really want to create, like, um, it's just like making a building or, I don't know, fixing something. I have no idea. You you create your, your foundation layer and then you build up on it, right? And each brick is a piece of evidence. Without evidence, then you you can't come to a conclusion, right? You have no way of testing whether or not your thesis is correct. So this brings us also kind of to my last point. Um, despite 
the tendency of both me and Maxfield to kind of ramble onwards. Less is more. Um, one of the things that I have noticed is that in great writers, great speakers, they are able to convey complicated ideas in the most concise fashion possible. Yeah, and if you talk to, uh, if any lawyers are listening, they will understand this perfectly well. If you talk to lawyers who their whole job, in particular if you're a litigator, is to communicate things to a judge and to persuade a judge in your favor as opposed to the, the opponent's favor. And one of the foundational aspects of legal writing is that you should write fewer words, use less space, write shorter uh, motions, shorter briefs than longer briefs. So, you know, in college, you write a thesis, right? And how does it work? It says, you know, if you have a 40-page minimum, you have to write at least 40 pages. So what do you do? You go out and you just like throw everything in the kitchen sink at it, whether it's logically tied to, the, to your thesis or not. Well, in law school, the way they teach lawyers is that they give you a page maximum. So they'll say, you have two pages maximum to write this memo. You have two pages maximum to write this brief. And what that does is not only does it re, you know, reinforce the requirement that you really very simply state your thesis and then tie everything together through logic and only include the absolutely necessary pieces, but it also makes it much easier to digest your message because only the things that are necessary is there. So when you're thinking about writing, really great writers, they go for, and this is something that I, I think that maybe non-professional writers don't appreciate as much because there's this thought that like, oh, the longer you, you know, the longer the pieces, the better they are. Well, that is not necessarily the case by any stretch of imagination. As a general rule, great writers try to do as much in as little space as possible. Yeah, and this gets to two points that I have seen um, a lot with with undergraduate writers that are related to each other. Is one when people don't really know what they're talking about, they end up going for length. They kind of do this, I'm going to throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks, and she'll hopefully just pick out the correct points, as opposed to thinking and saying to myself, these are these are the most important points, right? It's, it's, it's a sign that people don't really 100% know what they're talking about when things just go on and on and on. And the second point is that people who are more expert are more able to say things in a shorter fashion. So this is kind of like a the two sides of the same coin, right? If you want to really show that you know what you're talking about, you can do it in fewer words. Of course, this, is, this isn't always true. I've done a lot of science editing, and sometimes people's brains just don't think that way, and that's fine. That's why editors exist. We, we are here to help pare down your writing. But you really need to have that, like, those essential nuggets, and they have to be good. You know, you can't just throw everything and see see what works and have someone else decide for you. That means that you haven't really thought through what you're trying to write about. Yeah, and just to kind of to recap these four things, because, you know, and I think that you would agree with me, Gabby, that these are, if you can just kind of nail these four pieces, you're, you're going to be 90, you know, dramatically ahead yeah. of your average writer. And that's going to help you, like I said, writing emails to your boss, writing memos, whatever it is, doesn't matter what it is. These four things apply across the board also to investing. The first, write simply. Use simple words, simple construction, simple sentence construction. Second, start with your thesis. Come out, they call it a lead for a reason. Come out strong, tell people exactly what you're going to say, and then go through and say it. Pay attention to logic. Make sure that it flows logically, like a, like a chain, with, you know, that you have those interlocks of logic that are putting everything together. And finally, less is more. If you can say something in 
600 words as opposed to 1,000 words, chances are your message with 600 words is going to be more effective than your message with 1,000 words. Yes. And just to reiterate, just to give you kind of the investing takeaway here, right, which is investing is a lot of decisions. You want to make sure your decisions are good decisions. One of the ways you could do that is by writing, because writing forces you to think logically if you're doing it correctly. <laughs> um, also, I, I just kind of want to throw out there that um, a lot of people, I think most people now, uh, type everything up. They don't really write stuff by hand. But writing by hand is actually super helpful. There are studies out there showing that writing by hand um, helps light up those centers of your brain that are associated with learning in a way that typing doesn't. So when you write your notes, if you write them by hand, you're way more likely to remember whatever it is you're writing about. Um, it also shows that it makes people more meticulous and careful writers. And potentially, it also helps people be more creative in their writing. Um, it, it tends to stimulate a part of your creative brain that typing does not. So when you're brainstorming, I always brainstorm by hand. I find it easier, and I also find that my I, I come up with more creative ways to address a topic when I start out by hand and then go to the computer to actually type up the paper. Um, that's just kind of anecdotal for me, but um, everything else has studies behind it, and if you really want to know what they are, you're more than welcome to email me. Um, so real quick, I think we have just enough time to do a kind of what's coming up in bank earnings, because most of the big banks are releasing their earnings this week. Uh, and I know that, that this next quarter is going to be pretty rough on banks, especially our, our big universal like combo retail investment banks. Do you want to do you want to give your four reasons why, John? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just as a general, it's just going to be a, like, like you said, Gabby, it's just going to be a tough quarter for the big banks. Uh, four reasons for that. And, and universal banks in particular, these guys are, these are banks that have both investment banking operations and their, and all, which includes trading operations. And also on the retail side, you're, you're taking deposits and, and, and making loans. And there's really four reasons that, 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 that banks are going to struggle uh, during the first quarter. The first is that interest rates are still ridiculously low, right? The Federal Reserve came out in December, raised interest rates, raised short-term interest rates by a quarter of a percent, but they're still basically, for all intents and purposes, near zero. That hits banks' top line and their bottom line because one of the main ways that banks make money is they lend it out and, and, and the, the market they make short-term interest rates. So that's one reason. The second reason is that you, you know, oil prices are still ridiculously low. And what we're starting to see now that they've been low now for, for an extended period of time is that those companies are now starting, those oil companies are now starting to struggle to service their debts. And so what banks are doing is they're increasing their loan loss provisions as a result of that. And loan loss provisions act effectively as the same as expenses, so that will contract their bottom line. The third thing is that trading revenues are going to be down. There's too much volatility going on in the first quarter. There's too much uncertainty in the global markets, although there's always uncertainty in the global markets. But that's kind of what they always tag as the, as the explanation for a drop in trading revenues. Citi came out and said trading revenues, trading revenues were going to be down 15%. JP Morgan came out and said trading revenues are going to be down 20%. So that's going to hit these big universal banks, invest, uh, uh, bottom, top and bottom lines. And then finally, investment banking revenue. It looks like, although there's conflicting, there's been conflicting messages on this. Citi coming out and saying it's going to be, they're going to be much lower. Uh, JP Morgan coming out and saying that they're holding up decently. Uh, but I think it's safe to assume, just to prepare for the worst, if you will, uh, that investment banking revenues will be down too. So all four of these things are just going hit to the, hit the big banks. But the important thing for investors to keep in mind is that this is no time to flee. This is no time to be worried. Like 
they, these big banks, they're not going anywhere. They're going to no. stick around. They're going to be around 50 years from now. They're going to be, you know, 100 years and probably 100 years from now, right? So you just stick through these hard times. Pick, pick these shares up for large discounts to book value. In particular, I love Bank of America trading at a 40% discount to book value. You know, that more than offsets, in my opinion, uh, you know, kind of their, their, their revenue and earnings issues right now. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. I just wanted to, I, I hope that you guys really enjoyed this episode. Um, we had that writing segment, and then we had a very, very, very brief bank earnings segment. Um, if you guys have any questions, if you have any comments or concerns, or if you would like me to look over your paper before you submit it to your professor, uh, you can email us at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. Um, I guess if you have any general questions about writing, too, I'm more than happy to answer them. Not creative writing, because I'm not real good at that, but any kind of analytical science writing. I got your back, homie. Uh, as usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks mentioned, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks. Please don't buy or sell based solely on what you hear. Thank you guys very much for joining us, and I hope everyone has a great week. Thank you.